Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 44. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello and welcome. How is everyone? I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, another oral delight. What a show. Poetry comes today by David Pascal Merkel. Flash fiction comes to you none other than the great Norman Spinrad. Our fact article today is by Amy H. Sturgis. Look out for that. Main fiction comes tonight from Lucius Shepard. What a great story. And we have another beardy book review. Again, a fun pack show. I do hope you join me. So I think we'll kick straight off with a little bit of Pori. Flesh-Eating Alien Vampire Sex on the Moon by David C. Kaposka Merkel The Shumley flight is uneventful. Outside the window, the final frontier... Inside, he sees few prospects for fun. At W Station, he eyes vertical lunar beauties who make earthly anorexics seem plump. She reels him to the bar from across the room. He smokes into a wind from the planet of dry ice. The usual lines dry up. His tongue swells and his eyes water. He can't remember how to open his wallet. She pays in coins that glister in iridescent colors. She pulls him to a room and his pants deliquesce. His blind spot swells till even her breasts vanish, but he smells her with his skin and brain. She breaks the skin with horrifying appendages. She burns him, sucks him like a crawfish eats his head. They never find him, not even the bones. Hell, They don't even find the room. Publication History Hunger One, October 2005 Nominated for James Award The Memory of Persistence Chapbook, 2007 Thank you, David. That is fantastic. Look out for more work by David Kapaskar-Mergel coming soon. 
Just give you a little heads up on David. You can find his work. He publishes work at Dreams and Nightmares. I've linked that on the show. He also publishes flash fiction at The Daily Cabal and blogs sporadically at dreamnightmare.livejournal.com. He lives in Alabama with a boatload of artists on what was left of an early 20th century farm. A nice commune there, I think, sir. So check out David's work. Links again, like I say, on the site. And narrated by our good friend, Julie Davis. Please pop over to Julie's site, Forgotten Classics. Say hello, say fantastic narration. It certainly is. Julie, thank you so much. So we get on to our little bit of flash fiction. It comes from none other than Norman Spinrad. A little bit of bio on Mr. Norman Spinrad. Born in New York City, a graduate of the Bronx High School of Science. In 1957, he entered City College of New York and graduated in 1961 with a Bachelor of Science degree as a pre-law major. In 1966, he moved to San Francisco, then to Los Angeles, and now lives in Paris. Norman Spinrad served as president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America from 1980 to 1982, and again from 2001 to 2002. Today's story is narrated by good friend Mr. Mark Nelson. Mark has kindly narrated for the Starship Sofa before. Please do check out his website. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents... A Man of the Theatre I've been a man of the theatre for over a century, old enough to have played Hamlet and Richard, any number of Henrys, and Lear before my first rejuvenation, and in my own flesh and on the stage, not as an avatar, licensed or otherwise. You remember the theatre, don't you? Of course you don't. There hasn't been a play produced in, what, a quarter of a century? The characters must be played by live actors, not software emulations of the dead greats of yesteryear who never played the parts themselves, and certainly not by one of myself, and not because I could not compete with these pathetic avatars. Most of the roles in Reedy's are played by the greats of the past, because their fleshware templates being dead before the downloading technology was available, they've all been merely synthesized from old footage by the entertainment conglomerates which own the rights, and walk mechanically through the roles like the virtual robots they are, not even the virtual ghosts of true thespians. What is more, I was offered an emulation contract many long years ago, which I scornfully turned down. Yes, I was that good. Good enough so that they were willing to pay me royalties for the use of my avatar, even though they had a free casting call from over a century of film and television. But I would not betray the theater for any amount of money. The theater, they declare, is obsolete. Why would anyone pay money to watch third-rate human actors staggering around on a platform in front of a flat-painted set when they can tap into full virtual release telling the same story, if it's any good, with smell and taste and touch and pleasure-center stimulation, within a fully realized world that can be synthesized for the cost of theatrical sets alone. 
and to reach what demographics? A few thousand people a day, when the same budget is a hit machine tapped by scores of millions. The theater is dead, but the theater must not die. Those who do not understand why have never set foot on a stage before a live audience. I may be the last man alive who has. You have not seen those shining eyes riveted on you beyond the footlights. You have not smelled the heady aroma of an expectant live audience. Yes, I know, if there was any interest in such ancient history, you could experience it in a really. But the magic of the theater cannot be emulated. The intimate connection between the human actor and a live audience. For when a play succeeds, there is a collaboration between the actors and the audience. The actors and the audience live and breathe together, a community of the spirit in which the reaction of the audience influences the actors and shapes the live audience's experience itself. A positive feedback loop, as you moderns would so unromantically have it. If the entertainments, which fill so much of the populace as ours, are all soulless reallys without dramas acted out by fellow humans, in such intimacy with a living community, life itself will be entirely reduced to virtuality. Has it not already happened? Has it not already happened in the retirement heavens, where zombies are tapped into a thousand available channels of reallys twenty-four hours a day? The life support technology already exists, and it only awaits a profitable business model for the entire population of the planet to dream their lives away as the solipsistic gods of their perpetual virtual heavens. This is neither drama nor life. This is tyranny with an entertaining face. If the theater dies, so dies the human spirit. For only a great act of theater can reawaken it. Antonin Artaud wrote of the theater of cruelty. Do not amuse your audience. Be cruel to your audience in order to seize and hold it. I shall go him one further. The king will be parading from Buckingham Palace to the Houses of Parliament in his magnificently baroque horse-drawn carriage and in full costume like the penultimate actor that he is, his simple performance witnessed live by throngs gathered along the way to experience firsthand the royal presence. I shall wear the costume I wore when I played Othello the Moor, which no doubt will be taken for that of a caliphate terrorist, and the sword I shall use will be a scimitar, which I shall plunge into the royal breast before I detonate the explosives under my robes. It should bring on the long-awaited war. Thus will I remind the world of the sovereign power of an act of live theater. And my last line on the stage will be that declaimed in like manner by a scion of a noble theatrical family whose name yet lives for the ages, not that of the great Edmund, but that of his otherwise mediocre brother, John Wilkes Booth, Sixemper Tyrannus.
So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up again. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And if everyone's interested to know, I finished Kirk Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan. What a great read that is. I thoroughly recommend that book. And that is one of the Audible Frontiers books in Audible. It just, if you like Kirk Vonnegut, you'll love it. Do you know what I mean? And like, if you haven't tried any of Kirk Vonnegut's work before, this is the one I probably jump into and kind of, you know, like sample out his ways, if you know what I mean. And he's one of those writers, you kind of, you get to the end of the story and you just think, well, that was easy to kind of put together. Do you know what I mean? What, what's a good hype about this guy? But it's, you kind of listen, maybe listen to it again, or it's as you get near the end and you, you find all his kind of threads are tying together. Do you know, he's kind of throwing lines away as you go through the story and you think, what's going on? Where's all this going? But it's at the end where there's, yeah, honestly, your back of your neck is just shivering with the kind of excitement that's building with Sirens of Titan. Do you know what I mean? And anyone who's got in their, in their story a chronosynclastic infant diddlium is all right by me. So if you need to know what that actually is, what kind of event that is, check out Kirk Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan. Again, it's a chronosynclastic infant diddlium. What a fantastic book. So, we now move on to our fact article, and it is brought to us by Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, a great time was had on the engine room. What have you got today? Hello, it is now October, my very favorite month. And it's my very favorite month because the month ends with my very favorite holiday, Halloween. And so today I'd like to offer you some must-read stories for Halloween, Stories that are creepy and spooky and should get you in that nice Halloween spirit. Stories that are also important to the history of genre literature, and particularly, in some cases, science fiction. And stories that are my very favorite price, that is, free. All of these are available to read online. So, I will begin by recommending five short stories that I think you should read for Halloween. I'll go in chronological order. The first is an early science fiction work that deals with the familiar theme of the mad scientist run amuck. It's Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It dates back to 1844, but believe me, it can still deliver the chills. It tells the tale of mad scientist Rappuccini, who has a garden in which he is conducting some very unethical experiments. He's raising plants that are poisonous. Each has a different way to kill. In this forbidden garden of his lives his beautiful daughter, who's been raised among these plants, and thus is immune to them. But she's also become rather poisonous herself. The story goes on to explore what happens when a young medical student falls in love with Rappuccini's daughter against the advice of his mentor, Professor Baglioni, who claims that Rappuccini is up to no good and his daughter is, no pun intended, fruit of the poison tree. 
This short story has gone on to inspire plays, librettos, and even a film in 1963, Twice Told Tales, in which Rappaccini was portrayed by none other than Vincent Price himself. You may recall that in a past Oral Delights, I mentioned Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab, which produces fragrances based on literary inspirations. Well, Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab actually has an entire line of scents called Rappaccini's Garden, based on this short story. So this is the earliest of my must-read recommendations for Halloween, 1844's Rappaccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. You can find this story online at a number of electronic archives, including ClassicReader.com and the Electronic Text Center at the University of Virginia Library. If you Google Hawthorne and Rappaccini's Daughter, you'll have no problem in finding it. My next recommendation is even spookier. When I teach this text, my students invariably love it, but it creeps them out, and frankly, it creeps me out too. Carmilla, by J. Sheridan Le Fanu, which was originally published in 1872. Now, this is an old, old, old school vampire story. When I say old school, I mean Carmilla predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by 25 years. This is a story about a young woman who proves to be the prey of a female vampire, Carmilla. Some critics say that it is not only one of the first great vampire stories, but it is also one of the first great works of lesbian vampire literature. However you read it, though, Carmilla is a fascinating story. And it's had a very long life since its first publication. It's been adapted for films, radio, other books. It's been adapted for comics. Anime has been inspired by Carmilla, as well as video games. And there have been references in a number of songs and even Doctor Who episodes, which has to be the ultimate litmus test for um, arriving as a work of culture. The full text of Carmilla is available at Project Gutenberg and a number of other online archives. Just to give you a taste, I'll read you a quick excerpt. Under a narrow, arched doorway surmounted by one of those demoniacal grotesques in which the cynical and ghastly face of old Gothic carving delights, I saw very gladly the beautiful face and figure of Carmilla enter the shadowy chapel. I was just about to rise and speak, and nodded, smiling, in answer to her peculiarly engaging smile, when, with a cry, the old man by my side caught up the woodsman's hatchet and started forward. On seeing him, a brutalized change came over her features. It was an instantaneous and horrible transformation, as she made a crouching step backwards. Before I could utter a scream, he struck at her with all his force, but she dived under his blow, and unscathed caught him in her tiny grasp by the wrist. He struggled for a moment to release his arm, but his hand opened. The axe fell to the ground, and the girl was gone. Read Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lafanu. My next recommendation is another early work of science fiction, the 1887 story The Horla by Guy de Montpassant. 
Now, the Horla has lots of claims to fame, including the fact that it's been cited as an inspiration for H.P. Lovecraft's *The Call of Cthulhu*, which, like the Horla, also features an extraterrestrial creature who controls minds and is destined eventually to conquer the human race. This story has also been made into a movie, *Diary of a Madman*. Um, it influenced the Star Trek episode *Wolf in the Fold*, and was referenced explicitly in Manly Wade Wellman's book *Sherlock Holmes: War of the Worlds*. How good is this story at portraying the protagonist's descent into madness as he is controlled by the Horla? Well, scholars today continue to debate whether or not the author Guy de Maupassant had gone insane when he wrote this. He eventually did lose his mind, but they try to decide whether or not he was sane、uh, at the time that he wrote the story because it's just so good at describing madness. You can find the Horla at a number of different archives, including the University of Virginia Electronic Text Center. But personally, I recommend if you're into audiobooks, getting classic ghost stories from Audible because there is a wonderful. Reading of the Horla by Sir Ian Holm that will just curdle your blood. I highly recommend it, and I will admit I do love Sir Ian Holm's narrations of just about everything. He could probably read the back of a cereal box, and I would enjoy it. But his his rendition of the Horla is particularly chilling. So there you go. There's my recommendation for that. Next up, we have another story. This one from 1896, entitled "The Werewolf" by Clemence Houseman. Now she was an interesting and connected lady. She was an author, an artist in her own right. She was also the sister of the celebrated English poet A. E. Houseman, and the sister of the writer and artist Lawrence Houseman. And that brother illustrated the first copies of "The Werewolf." One of the things so interesting about this story is that it is based on early folkloric accounts of werewolves. This story predated Hollywood's Lon Chaney version or the Three Stooges version or all the different incarnations that would come later in films and other visual media about werewolves. And so it's based on earlier texts. And so the werewolf story that is told in this particular tale. Is quite old school without the influences of the modern werewolf that we think of today, and among other things of interest, this werewolf is also a woman, and she kills not only in her wolf form but also in her human form. Ah, pretty scary, isn't it? The werewolf is available at the Project Gutenberg site and a number of other online archives. It's definitely good reading for the Halloween season. So far, we have Rappaccini's daughter, Carmilla, the Horla, and the Werewolf. My last recommendation for must-read short story is William Hope Hodgson's *The Voice in the Night*, which was first published in 1907. And I assure you, this is still a very, very scary story. In this tale, a schooner in the middle of the ocean comes across a small rowboat. It's a dark, starless night, and the person in the rowboat does not want light to be shown on his face. But he tells the story of how he got there. 
why he's begging for food for himself and his fiance, and how their life has taken a very tragic and frightening turn after a shipwreck. This story has been adapted for film as Mantengo, and as Suspicion in the Alfred Hitchcock series. People who enjoy the X Files will recognize an influence in several of its episodes, and the story also inspired the DC Comics series and the television series that followed that, Swamp Thing. The Voice in the Night is available at a number of different online archives, including HorrorMasters.com. And in fact, if I could recommend one-stop shopping for your Halloween reading, I would recommend going to HorrorMasters.com. That's H-O-R-R-O-R-M-A-S-T-E-R-S.com, which has an excellent selection of weird, speculative, gothic, and science fiction from the last several centuries, uh, arranged in a very easy-to-search manner. And while I'm on the theme of Halloween, I would like to extend an invitation to you. This year, for the fourth year in a row, I will be doing a daily blog of Halloween literature, looking at speculative fiction, early Gothic works, early science fiction and fantasy works that send the chill down the spine. And so each day I'll be posting a different text with a link to the full text, and I'd love for you to join me. So if you'd like to, uh, please come to my blog, which is eldrichhobbit.livejournal.com. That's E-L-D-R-I-T-C-H-H-O-B-B-I-T dot livejournal.com. I'll be posting every day in October, and I'd love to have you join me for the spooky literary fun. And now, before I end my article today, I would like to take a moment to remember one of the first ladies of fandom. If you've ever attended a science fiction convention, or enjoyed a fanzine, or read nonfiction work about fan communities or fan culture, then you owe a debt to Joan Winston, whether you know her name or not. Her contributions to Star Trek fandom, and then fandom in general, cannot be overstated. She was one of the organizers of the very first Star Trek convention, which was held in 1972 in New York City. And she wrote the story behind that in her 1977 book, The Making of the Trek Conventions. That very first time, only a few hundred people were expected to come, but instead, over 3,000 fans came to hear Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and science fiction author Isaac Asimov speak. The rest is history. And the modern science fiction convention, whether it's about a particular television series, a particular author, or any combination of multimedia inspirations, really owes an incredible debt to the very first Star Trek convention, because fandom was ever after organized in a different way. Joan Winston also contributed an important chapter to Jacqueline Lichtenberg and Sandra Marshak's 1975 book, Star Trek Lives, which again proved the viability of science fiction media culture. And she appeared in the documentary Trekkies, too. In 2007, she was named the fourth most influential Star Trek fan of all time by TrekCore.com. She was a professional author and a literary agent, and she was an omnipresent fixture 
at particularly U.S. conventions. She continued speaking at genre cons for decades. Um, the last time she appeared at one was in Shore Leave in Baltimore in 2006. I had the very good fortune to meet uh, Joni Winston personally, get to spend some time with her, go out to dinner, go out to a movie, and just uh, get to know one of the pioneers of modern fandom and of modern fan activism. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. She was a delight to know. Um, she was a person who moved within both the professional and the fan worlds effortlessly. In fact, she wrote more than three dozen Star Trek fan stories, and she edited four issues of the fanzine number one for Orion Press. She was a remarkable lady and an outstanding ambassador for both fandom and science fiction. She passed away on September 11, 2008, at the age of 77. But she will not be forgotten. Thank you very much, and happy Halloween. Amy, thank you so much for that. Please do check out Amy's blog. Like she says, she's going to put a piece up there every day over Halloween. Amy's blog is eldridgehobbit.livejournal.com. So we're going to now pop over to Sean Kuo for another beardy book review. Sean, which one today? Hello and welcome to another beardy book review. This time I'm going back to 2006 and Fragile Things by Neil Gaiman. This will be slightly different to a normal novel review because of the nature of this book, but I hope you get something out of it. I'd like to quote here one of the pieces of Dust Jacket blurb from the hardback edition. Here we have poignancy, terror, nobility, magic, sacrifice, wisdom, mystery, heartbreak, and a hard-earned sense of resolution, a real emotional richness and grandeur that emerge from masterful storytelling. Yes, I know that's publicity material, but I think it really works as a concise overview of the book as a whole, giving you some insight into the variety of the book's contents. This is a collection of Gaiman's shorter works, but I don't think you could call all of them short stories. There are short stories here, but also poetry, quite a lot of it, short shorts, just one or two pages, and also writing that would fit nicely into the sofa's flash fiction slot, at least in terms of length, if not in subject matter. There are 27 short works in this volume, plus a lengthy introduction by the author where he discusses each piece, sometimes briefly, sometimes in more detail, and often with interesting insights into the origin of the work or the background circumstances that were in effect when the work was written. The introduction itself is actually one of the best bits of the book, as not only does it give you an appetite for each story, poem and so on, but it also includes another short story of flash fiction length within it called The Mapmaker. This collection ranges quite widely in its scope. There is what the average reader would call science fiction, there is a large amount of fantasy in a number of the short stories, in the sense of something outside of the usual range of human experience, not the sword and sorcery, goblins and wizards kind of fantasy. There is a touch of horror, an excellent alternative history or reality reimagining of a Sherlock Holmes story, with what I have to say was an excellent twist in the tale, a number of poems with fantasy or occasionally somewhat bleak reality settings, 
and a short novella called The Monarch of the Glen, billed in the book as an American Gods novella. Every piece in this book is independent and stand-alone. You can dip in at random and find interesting or intriguing pieces of writing. You certainly don't need to start at the beginning and work your way through. My favourites? I'd have to say A Study in Emerald, Goliath, Monarch of the Glen, Sunbird, and Closing Time. Your choices may, in fact, probably will be different. I really liked this book. I've read some of Neil Gaiman's works before, and have always felt a bit ambivalent about the stories, with the exception of Neverwhere, which I loved, and Good Omens, his collaboration with Terry Pratchett, which I like even more, and which always makes me laugh out loud. But this collection, I thought, was excellent. Neil Gaiman is so good at creating atmospheres that it often doesn't matter what the actual subject and direction of the story is. You just get caught up in the imagery and language and get carried along. I'd recommend this book, not just for fans of Neil Gaiman, but for any reader that likes a well-constructed tale with interestingly drawn characters and plenty of emotion and drive. I'd give this a 9 out of 10 on the Beardy Review scale. Please tune in again soon for another Beardy Book Review, but in the meantime, if you have any comments, please join in over at the Starship Sofa forums or email tony at starshipsofa at gmail.com. Bye for now. Sean, thank you so much for that. Do look out for more of Sean's work coming soon. He's right in the middle of a house-moving project, so <laughs> maybe be quiet for a couple of weeks from Sean. Hope that goes all right for you, sir. So now we are on to the main part of the show, the main fiction. It is by science fiction writer none other, Lucius Shepard. Mr. Shepard was born in August 21, 1947, in Virginia. He is the American writer whose work transcends easily into different categories. Classified as science fiction and fantasy writer, Shepard's first stories appeared in 1983 and his first novel, Green Eyes, appeared in 1984. At that time he was considered part of the cyberpunk movement. Lucius Shepard has won several awards for his science fiction. In 1985 he won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, followed in 1986 with Best Novella for his story R&R, which would later become part of his 1987 novel Life During Wartime. His novella, Barnacle Bill the Spacer, won a Hugo in 1993, and his poem White Trains won a Rising Award in 1988. Narration today comes by Mr. Paul Kajiji. Paul has narrated a few stories for us, and is soon going to be the voice of none other than Cory Dogatro. So look out for that. You can find Paul's work over on his website, theprocessdiary.blogspot.com. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present Senor Volto by Lucius Shepard. Ladies and gentlemen, I have come to your beautiful village tonight, and I offer this compliment without irony, with no hint of ridicule, for your village is indeed beautiful. Far more beautiful than even you who dwell here know. I have come tonight to give you a jolt from the electric truth of my existence. It is my belief that among you there is an individual with an irresistible affinity for that truth, someone whose drab mental sphere 
I intend to illumine as though it were a bubble filled with lightning, so they may continue the grand traditions of my kind. I know, I know, doubtless you are saying, this fool must think us unsophisticated. Every carnival that travels the length and breadth of Honduras carries with it a man who calls himself Senor Volto, a man who straps a car battery to his chest and attaches paddles to his hands in order to transmit shocks to whoever grasps them. None of them offer illumination, only the chance to measure one's resistance to pain. But I am not those other men, my friends. I am the one and only Signor Volto, and to prove the point, before I provide you with the opportunity to test yourselves, I will tell you my story. My name is Oriello Oncles, and I was born in Trujillo on the north coast. When I was twenty-two, my father died and left me the deed to the Hotel Christopher Columbus a blue-green rectangle of concrete block that occupied a choice section of beach property, with a pool and a mahogany-paneled bar that opened onto a deck. Few tourists came to Truillo, put off by the high incidence of violent crime and drug trafficking in the region. Yet I managed the hotel successfully for the next twelve years. The larger part of my clientele consisted of officials and guards who worked at the state prison, located near the center of town, an edifice hidden behind a high yellow wall. They used the hotel as a place where they could bring their women, and after a time they took me into their confidence and allowed me to assist in dispersing the cocaine they stole from imprisoned traffickers and laundering the money they received in return. I was never their friend, merely a useful associate. The fact is I feared them. They carried pistols and cattle prods and treated me with contempt. Though I prospered, though my wife, Marta, bore me two healthy sons, I yearned for respect. Both that of the prison guards and of the common people of the town, many of whom repudiated me for my criminal activities. This lack of respect, I believed, was all that kept me from contentment. But I have since concluded that my discontent was less associational than intrinsic. I was an unhappy child and had grown into an unhappy man. No ordinary... Sinecure, however honorable and profitable, would have sufficed to placate my inner demons. It may be I was looking for a judgment to complete my life. We tend to hide such desires from ourselves, to dress them in more reasonable cloth, knowing we will never be able to satisfy the standards against which we seek to be measured. If such was the case... Then judgment came to me in the form of a mechanic. It would nearly be as accurate to claim it was a woman, but I am appalled by clichés, even those attendant upon my nature. And since it was the mechanic who contrived the shape of the judgment rendered, I am inclined to give him credit. 
the woman, Sadra Rosales, was only a conduit, though perhaps I do her a disservice by this dismissal. Unlike most of the women who patronized the bar in my hotel, she held a position of some respect, editor of an English-language newspaper. Yet, like those other women, she has a history of drugs and romantic mistakes and was always on the lookout for a fresh mistake, one that would temporarily present an impersonation of hope. She was thirty-ish, with a broad Mayan face, a little thick in the waist, on the scale of Honduran beauty. She was no more than attractive, but she had a buoyant energy that lent her the gloss of beauty, and though I did not love her, I was in no mood to resist her. She suited the moment. She pleased my heart. She excited my body. And she was grounds for divorce. The problem of what I might tell my wife and of how divorce would affect my children, all the accompanying karmic issues, these questions troubled me. But I was never able to confront them because Sadra's problems pushed my own into the background. It was one thing after another. An assistant was sabotaging her at work. The father of her child was suing for sole custody. Her best friend, Flavia, was telling lies about her sexual practices. The latest and most pressing problem concerned her pride and joy, a gray Toyota whose dented grille expressed the automotive approximation of weary disillusionment. She had taken it to a mechanic, a friend named Tito Obregón, for a brake alignment and claimed he had stolen the new engine, replaced it with an inferior one. Now the car wheezed, stalled, and smoked. The police would do nothing. Tito was the lieutenant's closest friend. Sadra was considering a lawsuit. I went with Sadra one afternoon to see Tito at his shop on the outskirts of town, a low yellow building of concrete block with an enormous blue Aguazul logo painted on its side, like the flag of a proud nation. It stood at the center of an acre of ochre dirt and was hedged in the back by the lip of the jungle. Weeds, banana trees, palms. A group of ragged kids were playing soccer out the front and two teenage boys were leaning against Tito's tow truck, smoking and looking bored. Sadra insisted I stay in the car. She said she didn't want to involve me, but of course she had already done so by bringing me along. As they talked just inside the door, or, more precisely, as Sadra talked to him, Tito stared in my direction the entire time. Had Sadra, I wondered, trusted her car to a jilted ex-lover to fix? Such a stupidity would be in keeping with her character. A stew of feminism, manipulative pettiness, and a kind of sprained innocence. It grew oven-like inside the car. The soccer ball bounced out onto the highway and a tiny kid in red shorts ran to retrieve it, darting across the path of a bus that never slowed and missed him by a fraction. A smoky gray mist began folding itself over the crests of the hills behind the shop and Tito came to lean in the doorway, wiping his hands on an oily rag. He was skinny and vulpine, 
with prematurely gray hair and a heavy beard shadow, wearing chinos and a hard rock cafe tank top. I looked away from his stare. Beyond the weedy, vacant lot on the opposite side of the road, a wedge of the bay was visible, slate blue water armored with an unyielding glitter. Soon, Sadra returned, threw herself behind the wheel, and slammed the door. Puto! He says he doesn't care what I do! She swerved out into the traffic, telling me everything Tito had said, interpreting his perfidy, initiating a monologue that continued long into the night over shots of vodka and a quantity of excellent cocaine. Over the course of the following week, I felt marooned in the midst of my life and saw no sign of salvation on the horizon. More often than not, I found myself sitting at the bar, gazing glumly across the deck at the untroubled waters of the bay in the desolate point of land that, enclosing it, formed the Cape of Honduras. It was just off that cape that Christopher Columbus had anchored during his final voyage. He had been gravely ill and never set foot on the shore himself, thereby, I conjectured, establishing the pattern that governed our trickling tourist trade. A group of Americans returning from the Miskitia jungle booked rooms on Wednesday morning, bringing an uncommon and not altogether pleasant energy to the hotel, splashing and shouting in the pool, spilling drinks at dinner, and staying up until all hours playing cards. On Friday, some prison guards installed several women from La Quieba in the third-floor suite. The women never ventured into the bar, and the guards, those not occupied with the women, would sit at the table on the edge of the deck and drink. They were of a set, these men. Swarthy, thick-waisted, with oily hair and frog-like faces, dressed in slacks and short-leaved shirts, their wrists and hands heavied with gold rings and watches, looted and extorted from prisoners. While most of them took turns visiting with the women, the senior guard, Jorge Espinal, the widest and shortest among them, only strayed from the table to walk down to the beach and relieve himself. On occasion, he would summon me and ask me for more beer and snacks. He refused to place orders with my bartender, preferring to treat me as a menial. Whenever I came over, he would greet me with false effusiveness and wink at the others as if sharing a private joke, then laugh uproariously when I walked away. Furious, humiliated, I left the hotel early that evening, a couple of hours before I was to meet Sadra, and went striding along the beach and up through town without a thought for destination, imagining the violent humiliations I would visit upon Espinal if he were me and I were him. Across from the old graveyard in Truillo, a weedy ruin hemmed in by a crumbling stone wall and an arched gateway with no gate, situated on a red dirt road that angled uphill and west away from the center of town, lay a flea market. A row of ramshackle wooden stalls in which were displayed t-shirts, socket jerseys, aprons, toys and dolls, kitchenware, cutlery, and other household items, keychains, switchblades, barrettes, cassette tapes, all manner of cheapness. White and blue and yellow plastic banners advertising 
national beer was strung above the stalls and behind them was a grassy area where beer was sold from a metal cart. At the rear of this area was a little hang-cranked carousel suitable for toddlers, a circular platform no more than six feet wide that supported four tiny seats. A handful of women stood watching their children go round and round. Two of the kids were wailing, and I nourished the embittered notion that they were becoming aware that this tight, repetitive circle was all the ride they might expect from their life. A dozen or so working-class men were drinking and talking in a group. I bought a beer and leaned against the cart. The sky was hazy, a few blurred stars showing in that mottled darkness, and the air was thick and warm, infused with the scents of roast chicken, and odor emanating from the shanties tucked in amongst the palms and banana trees beyond the carousel. Radio music contented with the crying of the children. Gradually, I grew calm. I bought a second beer and debated the idea of buying a present for Sadra, something funny to take her mind off Tito and the Toyota. I suppose it was chance that led me to the market, but on turning from the beer cart and seeing Tito Obregon barely an arm's length away, dressed as Signor Volto in a straw hat in a farmer's rough clothing, battery strapped to his chest, braced in a harness of leather and steel that resembled some perverse sexual accessory, the cables running back to an alternator resting on the ground, a control box clipped to his belt, the narrow black paddles extending from his hands. When I saw him, I was afflicted by a frisson and had, albeit fleetingly, a more complicated understanding of the operations of chance, recognizing that coincidence and fate were likely partnered in that moment. I nodded to Tito, said, Good evening, and started towards the street. But Tito's voice, amplified and lent a buzzing inflection, brought me up short. Is Sorelio Uncles afraid of everything? Must he always hide behind a woman's skirts? Or dares he dare test himself against Senor Volto? One of the teenage boys who had been leaning against Tito's truck was holding a microphone to his mouth. Tito himself could not grasp it thanks to the paddle strapped to his hands. The boy smirked at me and Tito said, Perhaps our Oriello is not a man at all. Perhaps what Sadra Rosales says about him is the truth. Though it was customary for Signor Volto to offer such challenges, the anger in Tito's face was that of a scorned and possibly demented lover. And it occurred to me that Sadra was not so important that I cared to risk my well-being in a dispute concerning her. Since the battery was being powered by an alternator, it had no inhibitor, and thus Tito was capable of transmitting a fatal shock. I was certain that he knew that if he were to kill me, the prison guards would be more than a little upset with him over the loss of someone who served them as a financial conduit and host for their debauches. Nonetheless, I balked at the thought of grasping the paddles. The working men had broken off their conversation and were drifting towards us, nudging one another and grinning. 
Perhaps it is true, Tito went on. What Sadra tells all her friends at the newspaper, that the head of Aurelio Oncles' prick would fit inside a thimble. The working men thought this a grand joke and offered commentary. My anger building, I told Tito to fuck his mother. I wasn't going to be playing his game. Even a boy's game is too much for Aurelio, Tito nodded at his assistant. The boy took a stand in front of him and gripped the pedals. Tito twitched the controls. Voltage sizzled. The boy stiffened but did not release the pedals. Not even when Tito turned the voltage considerably higher. At last he broke contact, smiling and displaying his reddened palms to the men who gathered round. They voiced a murmurous approval. Do you see? Even this boy is more of a man than Oriello Oncles. I can't recall who it was that said everything is explicable in terms of a small child's behavior. I believe the comment was offered pertaining to the functioning of the cosmos, not merely the action of human beings. But it was certainly applicable at that moment. A petulant rage possessed me, and I thrust out my hands, intending to seize the pedals, but the boy stepped between Tito and me and demanded five lempira. My rage was such that having to pay for the privilege of experiencing a shock did not deter me. I fumbled for some bills, flung them at the boy, and shoved him aside and confronted Tito. Daunted by his appearance, I hesitated, with his face shadowed beneath the straw hat, the battery mounted in its brace of leather and metal, cables running off behind his arms, and those featureless black pedals lashed to his wrists. He looked the embodiment of an arcane peril. The group of men encircled us, lending a ritual symmetry to the scene, and more people were filtering between the stalls made curious, I imagine, by the pointedness of Tito's insults. Among them I recognized the Jeff of the prison, an elderly white-haired version of the squat, unprepossessing men who were at that very moment carousing on my deck. The old man's contempt for me was especially poisonous, and I could not bring myself to back down from Tito's challenge with him looking on. I remember taking hold of the pedals, hearing the faint hum and buzz of the voltage, as the prickling crawl of electricity in my palms evolved into pain. And I remember also how, as the pain grew intense, my vision reddened and my focus narrowed to encompass the lower half of Tito's face, his teeth buried in a snarl as if the pain were flowing out of his flesh into mine. This notion that pain, or some unknown agency of which pain was a byproduct, was leaving Tito's body and entering my own, was reinforced by the fact that his expression became increasingly one of relief and surprise. It seemed he too was aware of a sea change. Soon, the only sound I could hear was the ready whine of my nervous system, like a desperate insect trapped inside my ear. Shattering vibration flowed along my arms. My heart bucked and stuttered. My hands were on fire, and that fire darted into my chest, snagged in my bones. 
I wanted to let go of the paddles. I intended to let go. But there came a moment when I was certain I would let go. What inhibited this impulse I cannot say. Stubbornness was part of it. Stubbornness and the fear of greater humiliation. Yet another element was involved in my resistance, and in the midst of pain, a bubble of clarity briefly enveloped me, allowing me to consider what this element might be. I had the sense of being guarded, protected in some fashion, and I also had the impression of having bonded with that protective force and thus being sealed away from the possibility of mortal harm. Then clarity evaporated. My head shook violently. My eyes felt dry and rattling in their sockets. Fumes of smoke whisked up between my fingers, and the comprehension that my flesh had begun to scorch was the last thing I remember. Permit me, ladies and gentlemen, to put forward a thesis to suggest that it was not electricity that changed me, and there is no doubt that I had changed, for upon waking in the hospital, my burnt palms bandaged my fingers red as tomatoes and covered with salve. I was not, as might be expected, possessed by shame and rage over what had transpired at the flea market, but rather evidenced an unreasonable calm and a pragmatic appreciation of both the event and my resultant injuries. So permit me to suggest, rather than electricity opening me to change, that the precise amount of voltage transmitted through Tito's pedals caused me to become accessible to an entity. Perhaps a devil. Perhaps one of those numinous creatures that dogs and drug addicts see when they lift their heads from their stupider's contemplation of a roach or a stain upon the floorboards, to a corner of the ceiling, and thereafter track the invisible-to-others progress of some impalpable curiosity across the room. It's possible, of course, that my unnatural steadiness of apprehension of bonding I experienced while gripping the pedals was evidence of a symbiotic attachment or possession, because when I left the hospital, shortly before midnight, and strolled through the town, though I was thoroughly familiar with the potholed streets and the little stores, and the ragged crescent of the beach lined with shanty bars. They seemed at the same time new to me, and when I came in sight of my hotel, its shape as simple as a child's block, when I entered and saw the mahogany sweep of the bar with the rectangular portal in the wall behind it, through which I commonly viewed the bay and the deck where Espinal and his crony still sat and drank, I found the whole of it diverting and strange, as if another soul were sharing my eyes, a soul with a unique passion for life, greedy to observe every detail of this familiar, yet unfamiliar, scene. The strongest proof of my thesis was yet to come. I went behind the bar, poured myself a vodka, and while I was scooping up ice cubes, Espinal pushed back his chair and walked past me without a word. He stood, I tell you, and yet he did not move from the chair. 
it appeared he had divided into two espinals, one of whom headed along the corridor towards the apartment where I dwelled with my family. Though puzzled by the phenomenon, I took it more or less in stride and followed him, noticing that this figure was somewhat dimmer and ghostier than the one who remained seated, a colored shadow of sorts. The shadow espinal tapped on the door of my apartment. The tapping made no sound and was immediately admitted by my wife, wearing a flimsy peignoir. It must have been a recent purchase. She had never worn it for me. I was unclear as to what I was witnessing, uncertain both of what it signified and whether it was real or a byproduct of my disorienting encounter with Senor Volto. I refused to accept the obvious, that Espinal and Marta were having an affair. After a minute, I opened the door and crept towards the master bedroom. On the bed were two martyrs, one asleep on her side, and the other, a somewhat less substantial and entirely naked female form, mounted atop Espinal, riding the sluggish thrust of his hips, eyes closed and fondling her own breasts. For all their passion, there was no sound of breath or fleshy contact. But the sight of Marta thus engaged, even if she were only a phantom, tore at my spirit. I was convinced that this was, at the least, a shade of infidelity, the reflection of an actual event. It was not my love for Marta that kindled violence in my heart. Rather, it was violence, the allure of it, that opened me to love. A boil with hatred and confusion, I closed my eyes. When I opened them, I saw only the sleeping Marta. Espinal and the second Marta had vanished. Watching her stir beneath the sheets, my desire to hurt Espinal was married to a recognition of how little I had valued her, how utterly I had neglected her. I stepped forward, intending to make some show of affection and forgiveness, and spotted something under the edge of the bed. Espinal's cattle prod, a shiny black cylinder with a button trigger that he usually carried hitched to his belt. He had been here, I realized. Inside my wife, the carelessness of the man, the lack of respect implicit in his carelessness, it assailed me, as did the phallic shape of the prod. I wondered if he had left it there to goad me. I picked it up, and my anger seemed to course into it, to assume the form of that cold black stick. Ignoring the pain in my hands, I gripped the handle hard and visualized myself jamming the tip into Espinal's fat neck, triggering off charge after charge. How could Marta have made love to such a toad? Recalling her abandon caused my anchor to spike. And eager to demonstrate that no man could treat me so, I hurried from the room. Anger was free in me as never before. 
ungoverned by its normal restraints, but upon entering the bar, I was stalled in my vengeful progress by what I saw on the deck, illuminated by the pool lights. Five guards, Espinal among them, were seated around the table, talking easily, laughing, and those same five guards, or rather their colored shadows, were moving away from the table in various directions, vanishing around corners and through doors, like bright ghosts standing up from their bodies and going off on spectral errands. At the instant these phantasmal shapes would disappear, other identical shadows stood and went off in directions different from the ones they previously had chosen. Almost the same scene repeating itself over and over, as if the seated guards were generating a flow of afterimages, and not just afterimages, I told myself, four images as well. Images of what might come to pass. This was not mere speculation, for as I watched, one shadow got to its feet, extracted his car keys from a trouser pocket, saluted his companions, and went through the gate by the pool, leading to the parking area. And another passed out, slumped on his chair, mouth agape, chest rising and falling regularly. Yet the first shadow I had seen, Espinal's, had been the shadow of an action taken in the past. The cattle prod was proof of that. A third guard jumped up in apparent alarm and swung a beer bottle in a forceful arc through midair as if showing the others how he had subdued a dangerous criminal. It seemed I was witnessing a mingling of the past and possibility. Did this indicate that the past embodied the condition of possibility that it too was mutable? Before I could explore this question, anger overwhelmed me once again. I approached the table, holding the prod behind my back. Espinal glanced up. Amusement deepened the lines in the corners of his eyes. He spoke to his colleagues, words I failed to hear, and they laughed. As was my habit when exposed to such ridicule, I offered a pleasant smile, pretending to accept their laughter as expressive of a mood of good fellowship. But my smile was not its usual strained self, supported in this instance by a foundation of joyful and vengeful intent. Espinal didn't bother to look at me as I drew near. He only said, Bring us another round of beers, Oriello. Perhaps you'd care for some chips and salsa, I asked, and jabbed him in the neck with the prod. The shock elicited a grunt from Espinal and lifted him up from his chair to fall across the table. His arms swept empty bottles onto the floor. I jabbed him in the side and his torso spasmed. His head jittered against the tabletop. His mouth gaped, his eyes bulged, his limbs trembled. Pleased by his aghast expression, by the quivering of his muscles, I prepared to deliver a third charge, but then I sensed movement behind me and turned to see another guard swing a beer bottle at my head. The same act I had witnessed him performing moments before. Armed with that foreknowledge, I anticipated the arc of the blow, 
and so was able to dodge it. I jabbed the cattle prod into the guard's chest, and he fell, twitching onto the floor. My anger was supplanted by the eerie calm that had possessed me at the hospital. As the remaining guards came to their feet, I snatched Espinal's sidearm from its holster and told them to put their weapons on the table. Once this had been done, I ordered them to dive into the pool. They cursed and threatened, but obeyed. Seeing them so helpless, with only their heads clear, staring balefully at me, water dripping from their hair, I gave thought to shooting them. How satisfying it would be to watch them flounder as they picked them off one by one. Though this desire was fueled by a residue of anger, it was not a fierce impulse. I was already beginning to regret my intemperate actions, wondering if it might be possible to rectify the situation. I would have to hide out for a while. There was no doubt about that. Perhaps Marta's cousins in the Bay Islands would be of help. And something struck the back of my head, sending white lights spearing into my eyes. Dazed, my skull throbbing, I realized I had fallen. Marta was standing over me, still in her nightdress, holding a beer bottle. She said something in a contemptuous tone, but the words were muted, unintelligible, as if she was speaking from behind thick glass. I heard other voices, equally muted. The guards. They gathered around me, and as they began to beat me, it seemed they were multiplying infinitely, producing hundreds upon hundreds of shadow cells that separated from their bodies and hurried off to accomplish innumerable missions, moving more rapidly than humanly possible, as if God had speeded up the film of the world in order to show me everything that might happen, the variety of my potential fates, none of which I understood. The cell in which I waked was empty of furnishings. No cot, no toilet, only a drainage hole at the center of a slightly concave floor. The walls were not much farther apart than my outspread arms could reach and were painted canary yellow, a color that seemed to amplify a reek of stale urine. A rich, golden light, the light of the late afternoon, slanted through a slit window that were set too high to afford a view of anything other than a rectangle of cloudless sky. Every part of my body ached. Dried blood was crusted on my lips. Now and then a guard would pass by the barred door of the cell, trailed and preceded by his shadow-like variants. The effect I observed had diminished. The shadows were scarcely more than gauzy flutterings. Moving gingerly, I propped myself up against the wall and sat with my head hung down, weighted by a recognition that I was finished. The best I could hope for was torture, followed by a term of prison. Knowing Espinal's coarse sensibilities, having listened to countless stories relating to the brutal autonomy he wielded within the walls of the prison, I doubted I could hope for even that. I thought of Marta, with bitterness and logging, and of my two sons. I thought, too, of my hotel. I had perceived it as a prison that defined and delimited me. 
but now held within an official confine, that blue-green cube with the ocean stretching out before it appeared to embody the very essence of freedom. Tears started from my eyes. I could blame no one except myself. If I had treated Marta with respect and love, she would never have betrayed me. Such thoughts accumulated in my head like a soggy mess, and I lapsed into a fugue. Aware of intermittent voices, of men passing in the corridor, of the light dimming, I stood up once to urinate into the hall. For the remainder of the day, I sat without moving, empty and humiliated. More a relic than a man. It was after dark when Espinal came along the corridor to my cell. He leaned against the gate, peering through the bars, his face neutral. Expressionless as a frog, you might have said. Yet even a frog's face is colored by a kind of gloating simplicity. And though Espinal bore some resemblance to that creature, neither gloating nor triumph nor emotion of any sort surfaced from his depth. As if only his bloated body were present and his soul had flown elsewhere, perhaps attached to one of the flimsy shadows that proceeded from him. He said nothing, and the silence seemed to hollow out a vast space around us to create a universe populated by a single torturer and his victim. He was dressed as for an evening out. Dark, neatly ironed slacks in a sports shirt bearing a batik pattern, a gold chain cinched his swarthy neck. A cattle prod was hitched to his belt. My instinct was to plead with him, to reason. Where, I wanted to ask, would he find a more efficient conduit for his drugs? Now that I was in his thrall, I would prove a thoroughly malleable host. Any room he wished, any number of rooms, might be his at any hour of the day. But the silence pressed against my chest, my Adam's apple choking me, and I could not speak. Oddly enough, I felt a measure of anticipation for what was to come, and when Espinal opened the gate, rather than cowering, I sat up alertly, like a child, expecting a treat. Espinal did not bother to shut the gate behind him. He unhitched the cattle prod and showed it to me, letting the light play over the shiny black cylinder. A smile hitched up a corner of his mouth. You truly are a stupid piece of crap, Oriello, he said. Though these words offered no promise of mercy, that he had acknowledged me in any way generated an ounce of hope, I marshaled my arguments, ordering them into a logical progression. But before I could state my desire to please him, Espinal stuck the cattle prod into the pit of my stomach and triggered off a charge. My memories of the next hours are fragmentary. I recall Espinal standing above me, spitting into my face, cracking me with his fists, cursing me, his puffy cheeks mottled with rage. At several points he broke from his extortions and on one such occasion... Sitting with his back against the wall, smoking a cigarette, he informed me of his plan to marry Marta and thus gain ownership of the hotel. She's a terrific fuck, he said. 
but the world is full of terrific folks. I would never tie myself down to her if not for the hotel. You did not understand how to make full use of either your hotel or your woman, Ariello. He paused, blew a smoke ring and watched it dissipate. Women, he said musingly. They have their subtleties, their eccentricities. But at the heart, they only want to be secure. Perhaps if you had been stronger, if you had been a fortress for Marta, and not a little house of straw, perhaps she would not have sought me out. I must have made a noise of some kind, for he patted my shoulder and said, Don't try to speak. You'll merely exhaust yourself. And we have so much further to travel, you and I. He stopped out his cigarette on the floor and voiced a sigh of, I thought, satisfaction. I intended to have you disappeared, but your fit of temper makes things so much easier. No one will initiate an inquiry if something happens to you now. In the course of his abuse, Espinal frequently employed the kettle prod, and despite the excruciating pain, the spasms, the bile rising in my throat, and the trembling of my limbs, instead of growing weaker and more mentally disorganized, I grew stronger, centered my outrage as if some portion of my being were receiving a positive charge, becoming further enlivened by each and every jolt. The colored shadows that prior to Espinal's appearance in my cell had all but vanished now proceeded from him in a continuous flow, clearly visible giving me a preview of the torments he might soon visit upon me. And so it was that when, after another cigarette break, he bent down to retie his shoelace, I had already watched his shadow self performing this act and was able, therefore, to avail myself of the opportunity, lashing out with my right leg and catching him flush on the chin. He fell onto his back, Moaning, still conscious, denying the pain that attended my least movement, I scrambled up, seized the kettle prod, and jabbed it into his chest, jolting him again and again, hoping to explode his flabby heart. His eyes rolled back, thick strings of drool eeled between his lips, his belly heaved and jiggled, yet he refused to die. So frustrated was I by Espinal's persistence, I wrangled out his sidearm, intending to shoot him. But footsteps in the corridor awakened my desire for self-preservation. A young guard with a wispy mustache was ambling towards the cell. As he drew near, I stepped forth and ordered him to unlock the other cells, an order with which he did not hesitate to comply. 7. Bleary, dispirited prisoners tottered out into the corridor, staring at me with fear and bewilderment. I bound and gagged the guard and sat him down beside Espinal. Then, turning to the prisoners, I told them that salvation was at hand. Atop the green mountain that rises behind the town of Troilo, hidden most of the days by mist, enclosed within a cyclone fence, to the powerhouse 
and an antenna belonging to Cablevision, the cable company that serviced the region, and a tin-roofed cabin of unpainted boards where there lived the caretakers. Antonio Obre and his wife Soyapa, family friends of many years' duration. It was there I headed after negotiating my escape, which was not so difficult a feat as one might imagine. Having been complicit with Espinal for over a decade, I knew he had protected himself by giving in to his lawyer's custody evidence against his various associates that was to be made public in the event of his untimely death. Two of my fellow escapees dragged Espinal along, I held the gun to his head, and we were passed through the main gates of the prison without sufficient delay by men who could not afford to let us murder him. We crammed into Espinal's SUV, and I drove west towards La Quieva. Three miles outside of the town, I stopped the car, handed the keys to a cocaine dealer with bloody broken teeth, and stuffing the gun in my belt, carrying Espinal's cattle prod, I began hiking through the jungle toward the mountaintop. I had no illusions as to Espinal's future now that I had abandoned him to the mercies of those he had brutalized. They would keep him alive for a time in order to guarantee their safety, but judging by the hateful relish with which they stared at him, I knew they would ultimately seek retribution. I hoped they would be deliberate, that they would, as he had done, fully explore the dreadful potentials of the human nervous system, though necessity dictated that they not be too thorough in their vengeance. They would not survive him for long. Sooner than later, the car would be spotted, and since escaped prisoners were rarely afforded an opportunity to surrender, the chances were good that they would not live to report on my whereabouts. Although they were drug traffickers and deserved no sympathy, I experienced guilt over my manipulation of these men. Such a cynical disregard for life, even for misbegotten lives such as theirs, was not part of my character. But from the moment Espinal began to use his cattle prod on me, it seemed I had not been myself, that my usual tendencies were overthrown and my weaknesses bulwarked by a calm, single-mindedness that had grown increasingly dominant with every jolt. After four hours on the trail, the sky had paled, and I was spent. It had rained on the mountaintop. The air was thick with a chill dampness. Bottles lay everywhere, and the ground was mucky, furrowed with tired tracks. Towering into the mist above the cable fishing compound, the antenna looked to have acquired a magical aspect, resembling a four-sided steel ladder ascending into an unstable dimension of swirling gray. Beneath it, the powerhouse, a green lozenge of concrete block, choked and homed. No smoke issued from the cabin chimney. Antonio's venerable Hyundai pickup was not in evidence, and I assumed that he and Soyapa had driven into town for the early market. As empty of hope and energy as I had been while in my cell, I sat down on a rock just outside the cyclone fence, at the summit's edge, 
and gazed out across the sea of mist. I made out peculiar shapes moving therein, attributing them to a perceptual impairment caused by my enervated condition. But as the sun climbed higher and the mist burned away, revealing the slope of the mountain, the town laid out along the crescent of the bay and closer to the horizon, the narrow point of land that formed the Cape of Honduras, those ephemeral shapes became more substantial, though as yet poorly defined, hundreds upon hundreds of them drifted through the air, transparent in the way of jellyfish. I suspected they might be akin to the shadows I had seen emanating from the corporeal bodies of Espinal and the other guards, and thus might offer some clue as to what was happening to me, and I was led to consider the fact that each time I received a jolt of electricity, the shadows had grown clearer. I wondered if another jolt would make them clearer yet. The prospect of using Espinal's cattle prod on myself in order to test this hypothesis did not set easily, but neither did it seem a complete absurdity. From the inception of the idea, I felt the same upwelling of anticipation than I had when Espinal entered my cell, as if something inside me desired it, and that feeling came to outweigh all my reservations. I pulled up my trouser leg, placed the tip of the prod against the flesh of my calf, and, after a moment's hesitation, triggered off a charge. When I recovered, and my period of recovery was much shorter than it theretofore had been, what I saw caused me to re-evaluate not only my understanding of all that had happened to me, but as well as my basic assumptions concerning the nature of the world. We live, ladies and gentlemen, at the bottom of an ocean of air. It is a tired metaphor, yet nonetheless true. We inhabit a depth, scuttling, crab-like, along the bottom, our vision limited to the straight ahead, unaware of the myriad swimmers above and around us, believing we are alone. Had I been sitting on this summit prior to my confrontation with Tito Obregón, I would have seen nothing more than blue sky and white clouds, buildings on the horizon, the glittering sea, the town, the palms and fig trees and other vegetation figuring the mountain slope. Whereas now, I saw those myriad swimmers, countless thousands of them, drifting, darting, sailing, they maintained their transparency yet were of every hue, shadings of red, blue, yellow, green, and posed of veritable circus of forms, like a fever dream from the mind of a Bosch or a Bruyel. Predominant among them were slightly curved, roughly circular creatures fringed with cilia, a pale mottled brown in color, six to eight inches in diameter, and thinnes tortillas, which I took to calling Melchior's because their resemblance to the liver-spotted scalp of my maternal uncle, Melchior Varela. But many other species were visible. Some were serpentine, others like partially deflated balloons, 
others skate-like. There were far too many to catalogue. I have since recorded and studied several hundred species, but that is but a fraction, I believe, of those that exist. They occupied every level of the sky, but clustered so thickly above the town that all but a handful of roofs were obscured. Behind me, the antenna and the powerhouse were covered by a bobbing, eddying sheet of such creatures, like sponges moved by a current. I conjectured that they might be attracted to the electricity, but if this were so, why then did they congregate so heavily above the town, many sections of which had no power? After half an hour or thereabouts, the creatures began to fade, growing increasingly transparent, and I was forced to use the cattle prod on myself once again, so as to restore them to brightness. It may seem unreasonable that I would undergo such pain, but the way they moved, both separately and in schools, like the dance of sea creatures along a reef, and the thought that Troilo was indeed a reef of sorts, a habitat where they could flourish, and the quirky complexity of their bodies, all equipped with inflatable sex, that, I assumed, enabled them to float up on the air, and with cilia and other anatomical features whose purposes I could not fathom, curiously configured tubes and slits and spindly structures, I was fascinated by them, compelled to observance. I noticed that each time I used the prod, various of the creatures would flock towards me, is supporting my suspicion that they were attracted to electricity, and once, while I lay recovering from a shock, a swizzle stick, this the name I gave to a type of serpentine creature because they reminded me of the plastic aperturances with which cocktails are stirred, approximately ten inches in length, its body rippled, almost serrated in aspect, tinted a watery green, eeled close to me, and before I could recoil from its touch, nudged my forehead with a blind, mouthless snout. I felt tingling, not in the least unpleasant, beneath the skin of my forehead, as if the snout had penetrated a centimeter or two, and this was followed by a stronger tingling that emanated from deeper within my skull, and an accompanying flash of irascibility. The swizzle stick zipped off into the upper air, loosing itself among a school of pinkish, half-deflated balloon creatures. I called them biscochos after the little cakes with the pink icing that my mother made for my birthday. Thereafter, I felt another tingling in my skull, softer and less agitated, conveying a soothing effect as if something settling back after a moment of alarm. I recalled the impression I'd had while grasping Senor Volto's paddles that something was passing out of Tito's body and into mine. The idea that one of those swizzle sticks or some similar creature might be coiled in my brain, feasting on its trickling output of electricity, revolted me, and I jumped to my feet. But almost instantly, a fresh infusion of calm flooded my mind and I was unable to sustain revulsion, as if the unknown thing I believed to be inside my head were responding to my stress and acting to placate it. The sun was nearly at the meridian, and I was still engaged in watching the surreal spectacle unfold in the sky 
when Antonio's battered red pickup came jouncing up the pothole road from the town and stopped inside the fence. Suyapa, a sturdy, honey-skinned woman, perhaps twenty years his junior, climbed from the cab and went into the cabin, trailed by a procession of shadow cells. And Antonio, a stocky, elderly man with a dark, leathery face and straws of gray hair protruding from beneath a New York Yankees baseball cap, stepped off the side of the cabin and urinated onto a patch of grass, an act mirrored by a succession of shadows who, having done their business, float away in different directions. On seeing me, he called out, Oriello! He zipped up and came over to the fence and gave me a puzzled look. Your hair! What happened? I touched my hair. Found it as ever. It's like mine, Antonio said. All gray. He guided me into the cabin. Two tiny rooms whose plank walls were decorated with dozens of pages torn from religious magazines, photographic images of the Pope, statues of the Madonna, depictions of Christ. In a scrap of clouded mirror affixed to the door, I saw that my hair had been leached of its black and now had the hue of cigarette ash. My face was haggard, its lines deeply etched. I might have aged ten years in a single night. I sat down by a little table against the wall, reeling from this latest shock. You are in desperate trouble, my friend, Antonio said, joining me at the table. Everyone in town is talking about the prison break. He asked how I reached this pass and I related the events of the previous day. I told him that no matter what fate awaited me, at least I could derive some satisfaction from having avenged myself upon Espinal. And Antonio said, Espinal is not dead. This revelation left me speechless. The other prisoners were apprehended in Puerto Castillo while stealing a boat, he went on. And Suyapa added, They tried to use Espinal as a hostage, but the police shot them before they could do him injury. She set a plate of chicken and rice before me, but I was too upset to eat. Saying that I needed to think, I went outside and sat on the ground, shielding my eyes so I would not be distracted by the cartoon-like creatures that populated the air. Until I discovered Marta's affair with Espinal, I had never hated anyone. I had feared and resented, but my mental soil had proved unsuitable for the cultivation of strong emotion. Even my love for Marta had been an indifferent thing. Knowing Espinal was alive, however, and not just alive, but free to be with Marta, who I now loved with uncharacteristic intensity, that knowledge inflamed me. Hate became a star exploding in my interior sky, and I was consumed by the desire to kill him. I have since come to recognize that the creature that possessed me, a creature whose identity I will not know until the moment it vacates my body, a moment that is, I believe, nearly at hand, I recognize that it was responsible for this amplification of emotion. The relationship between us was not that of parasite and prey, but of symbiotes. 
I provided it with a nice warm skull and a steady diet of electrical energy. In return, it maximized me, made me more of who I essentially am. I understood none of this at the time. My thoughts were directly solely towards Espinal. I could not wait to kill him. I remained sitting outside the cabin for many hours, less thinking of than focusing upon Espinal. I conceived no plan, but I knew I needed to get closer to my enemy, and I believed that my altered appearance, my gray hair and deeply lined face would permit such an approach. At one point during the afternoon, Suyapa came out of the cabin and told me apologetically that I was welcome to stay in the compound for a day or two, but no longer. Though we had not been close since the death of my father, for whom they had worked as a cook and caretaker, sooner or later, someone was bound to recall the connection between us. As much as they considered themselves friends, she and Antonio had to look to their own survival. I was a child during the days when Suyapa and her husband worked for my family, and though I had borne them a modicum of affection, I neither loved them nor appreciated them as I did that afternoon. It seemed I was now able to perceive their essentials, their core of devout simplicity that was both their strength and their weakness, the quality that invests the Honduran soul with its capacity to endure the outrageous of Honduran fate. I informed her I would be leaving later that evening and said that if I could borrow some of Antonio's old clothes and catch a ride into town, I would be grateful. You will be killed, she said solemnly. It would be safer if you let Antonio take you inland, or perhaps north, into the Picos Bonitos. My response was a despondent statement whose brighter meaning I had yet to comprehend. I am dead already, I told her. So it was, ladies and gentlemen, that I came to Trujillo at twilight on the same day, dressed as an old beggar in a patched suit coat and grimy trousers, a frayed straw hat with a wide brim, shadowing my face, sweating profusely in the thick heat and carrying a sapling trunk that I had caught for a walking stick. I hobbled in from the outskirts of town, where Antonio had dropped me, and made my way along the airport road until I reached the turnoff that led towards the beach and the Hotel Christopher Columbus. I had not used the kettle prod on myself in several hours. The prod and Espinal's pistol were stuck in my waistband, Yet my ability to see the creatures who flocked overhead, almost completely obscuring the indigo sky, was undiminished. I believe I must have passed some electric threshold, perhaps accumulating a sufficient charge so as to empower this facet of my vision. The shadow effect, however, had diminished, though I could still make them out streaming from the bodies of passers-by. They were barely perceptible. And remembering that I had not seen the shadows directly after my confrontation with Tito in the flea market, 
I understood that my sharp perception of them was likely only a stage in the process of my transformation. And I did feel transformed. Clear as never before. So much of my life had been spent, as is much of every life, in attempting to elude the judgment of fate. And now I embraced that judgment without trepidation. The Aerials, my generic name for the creatures occupying the air, were indeed feeding on the citizens of Truillo. For the most part, this feeding appeared to do no harm. An aerial would drift or dart close to someone's head. A charge of pale electricity would spray upward into the body of the aerial from the top of the head, and thereafter that person would continue on with whatever he or she had been doing, displaying no ill effects whatsoever. But as I made my way along the access road toward the beach, passing a group of schoolboys in white short sleeve shirts and dark blue trousers, I noticed amongst the melchiors, the swizzle sticks, the bizconchos, and the other varieties of aerials swarming overhead, a smattering of bloated forms with stubby tubes protruding from their underbellies, all a purplish-black in hue, roughly corresponding in size and shape to that of the human heart. Black hearts, I call them. One of these creatures settled upon the head of a skinny schoolboy, who, while swinging his backpack about, swatting playfully with it at his fellows. Almost immediately after the black heart had come to rest, the boy ceased his energetic activity and walked stiffly, slowly for several paces, his face devoid of expression and dazedly falling far behind his classmates. I had not planned how I would kill Espinal, but the realization that certain of the aerials had a deleterious effect upon the body inspired me to think that exposing him to the ravages of the black arts, luring them to him in some way, and watching them drain him of energy, that would be the most fitting end for the men. It grew dark as I hobbled along the beach, presenting the image of a doddering old man who had gotten lost and strayed towards the tourist end of town. The young men standing outside the beachside bars taunted me and laughed. I had behaved with a similar lack of respect when I was young, hurling similar taunts, and now, consumed by an unfocused hatred that was in no small part self-loathing, I extended my left hand to them and begged for an empira for whatever they could spare, keeping my right hand near the grip of Espinal's gun speculating that it might not be so important to kill Espinal, tempted to believe that exterminating any of these cruel shapes would serve my purpose. Set adjacent to my hotel was Gringos, an establishment of bamboo and touch above a concrete deck and open to the air, a tourist bar that, since there were no tourists, catered chiefly to the expatriates and young Honduran women. As I passed, I glanced inside, and there, sitting at a table beneath 
a bobbling cluster of Melchios and Visconchos and Panuelos, flimsy, yellowish, rag-like creatures that had the look of unwashed handkerchiefs. Sadra Rosales was nursing a margarita, talking to her best friend, Flavia, a slightly overweight and overly made-up woman with dyed red hair. Sodra's manner struck me as being inappropriately blithe for someone who had lost her lover, and curious about her, I entered the place. A bartender tried to shoo me out, assuming me to be penniless, but I showed him my money, ordered a whiskey, and chose a table adjoining Sadra's, sitting with my back to her no more than a foot away. So confusing, Sadra was saying. I never thought Auriello had it in him, that kind of passion, especially where Marta was concerned. That's how, Flavia said. She goes around acting like a princess, yet everyone knows she's a complete slut. Code, yes, she must have fucked the entire staff at the prison. Why don't you do something to her? What do you suggest? I don't know. You think of something. Maybe you can write something about her for the paper. Oh, I don't care that much about her. I just miss Ariello. Liar, Flavia said. You were only using him to get Tito back. That's not true. I liked Ariello. A giggle. Well, maybe I was using him a little. Both women left, and then Sadra said, I simply don't understand what happened with Tito. What's there to understand? He's a man. He's probably gone off with another woman. But to leave the shop like that, to just open vanish, it is not like him. He's always been so responsible about his business. I pause. Then he had been acting strangely for most of this year. He's been so distant. That's why I pretended to break up with him. I... Flavia made an amused noise. So you were pretending, were you? You know, I thought he was losing interest and I decided he might get interested again if he thought he was losing me. Maybe Oriello threatened him and that's why he left in such a hurry. You said that he had sort of a run-in. Yes, but he didn't seem concerned. It was like his mind had gone off somewhere else. Like he was... He was not himself. Didn't he say where he was going in the letter? The mountains, that's all he said. He said he had to go to the mountains. And then he rambled on about finding gold for a couple of pages. Gold? Flavia snorted in disdain. It's another woman for sure. Men only tell that kind of lie when it's about sex. Sadra gave a dramatic sigh. It's so depressing losing two men almost at once. Don't worry, there are plenty of men left in Truillo, though not as many as rich as Oriello, and none with as big a prick as Tito. My God, it was enormous. They laughed again, and the conversation turned to a party that was to be held later that night in Barrio Cristales. I drank my whiskey in a single gob, and went out to the beach and flung myself down on the sand close to the tidal margin and contemplated how thoroughly betrayal had been woven through the fabric of my life. Of course, I understood I deserved no less. I had been leaving my fate all the while, and this understanding, at such odds with my usual tendency towards self-pity, caused me to become aware that although I regretted a great deal, I was not overwhelmed with regret. 
I thought of what Sadra had said, that Tiro had grown distant. The word was as good as any to describe how I felt about Sadra and much else. I could sustain no bitterness towards her. Whatever role she had played with me was no less false than the one she was playing now, and whatever she had actually felt for me, however true, was nothing more than a byproduct of the insanity between men and women. The only portion of the past that roused my emotions was the affair between Espinal and Marta, and even the passion seemed to have acquired a formal gloss. Not that my desire to kill Espinal had abated, but it seemed now more a consequence of human office, as if hatred were a contractual concession made between the soul and the mind to allow their coexistence. I wondered if Tito's prematurely gray hair could be taken as a proof that he had been possessed by the thing I believed to be living inside me. If so, what did its absence mean to him? Why had this provoked his sudden exit? Little waves delicately edged with foam rolled in to film across the sand. Lightning strobed in the darkness beyond the cape, and a wind tossed the palm tops, a storm blowing in from the Caribbean. I smelled ozone on the air and noticed that the areals were massing together and moving toward the hills in a stately migration of cartoonish forms, perhaps giving evidence that a big electrical storm was dangerous for them. Strung out along the shore, the lights of the bars and shanties looked to be spelling out a curving sentence of bright blurs and dots. I felt stranded in the place and moment, utterly alone. Red lightning cracked the sky, followed by a peal of thunder that had the sound of an immense fake, as if a giant had struck a vast sheet of flexible metal. A disco beat became audible over the gusting wind, and I glanced toward the hotel. Several dozen people silhouetted against hot lights crowded together under the roof portion of the deck. Espinal's welcome home party, I imagined. A stairway of nine steps led up from the beach to the deck. I gave it a wide berth, keeping closer to the water, and headed for a spot some fifty feet farther along, a narrow inlet shadowed by a group of carousal palms, beneath which a fallen palm trunk still attached to its stump provided a makeshift bench. There I sat while the party raged and the storm gathered. A rain squall, outlying the storm, came to dimple the water of the inlet, and the thunder grew more frequent. The majority of the areals had passed off inland, but hundreds yet remained, hovering above the beach, most of them black hearts. The fronts of the surrounding palms lashed and slithered together. Burning stick men jabbed and dazzled on the horizon, seeming to reflect the lightning of my thoughts, strokes of hatred illuminating a dark matter. I had entertained a vague notion of waiting until the party ended, then sneaking into my apartment and catching Espinal with Marda. But as things turned out, I needed no plan. Soon a torrential rain, 
driven slantwise by the wind, sent the party goers scurrying from the deck and into the hotel. The sea tossed and billowed, heavy waves piling in upon the sand. The roiling clouds were illuminated by lightning strokes, and the thunder grumbled constantly, with now and again a powerful detonation that gave me a start. None of this appeared to disturb the remaining aerials, buffeted by the wind, sent bobbling this way and that. They nonetheless maintained their relative positions along the shore, and neither did the weather appear to disturb the drunken, thick-bodied man who was making a wobbly descent of the stairs, reeling sideways as he set foot in the mucky sand. In a lightning flash, I saw him. Espinal. The gold chain winked at his neck. He plowed forward against the wind and took a stand at the water's edge, his head thrown back, as if daring the storm to do its worst. That, I suspected, was precisely his state of mind. This was the character of his arrogance. Having survived my attack, a kidnapping, and being taken hostage, he believed, or half-believed, he was indomitable. Himself a force of nature, wind, waves, lightning, what were they when compared to the mighty Espinal? After a moment he unzipped his trousers and urinated into the wind. A few splatters of piss on his trousers, what did this matter? Nothing could blight his potted aspect. I doubted he would have felt so invincible had he been able to see the black hearts massing above him, gathering into an eddying cloud that seemed, in miniature, a representation of the storm clouds overhead. I expected them to drop down upon him that my idea concerning their role in his demise would prove to have been a presentiment. But instead, they drifted apart. Lightning struck close by. A stroke that speared the sand several feet farther along the beach. The blue-white flash blinding me for an instant. The blast did not bother Espinal. Once more he adopted a defiant stance and gazed out across the toiling waters of the bay. I cannot say exactly when it was I began to sense a new electric presence in the air but I believe it was a subtle stimulus deriving from this presence that encouraged me to act, and I am certain that I experienced a surge of that curiously dissociative anticipation such as I had first felt in my prison cell. Espinal, still daring the sky to kill him, did not notice me emerging from the palm shadow. The storm was reaching a crescendo. A barrage of lightning struck offshore, deafening, bluish-white explosions that shed a hellish illumination, and for the duration of those flashes, the sea looked to be a boil, waves leaping, plying in every direction. The hotel and the bars and the shanties that ranged the shore appeared to flicker in and out of existence. Thunder came full-throated with the roaring light, and the wind, unheard in all that concatenation, peeled up the tin roofs from the shanties and bent young palms horizontal. I could have fired off a cannon, and no one would have known. But I wanted Espinal to understand that I was responsible for his sorry end. I moved to within six feet of him before he caught sight of me. He was very drunk and did not recognize me, even after the wind blew off my head. 
but he saw the gun, and his slack features tightened with alarm. Only when I pulled out the cattle prod did recognition dawn. He shouted at me, the words taken by the wind. Then, as I thought how to best prolong his torment, formulating insults I might express as he lay dying, Espinal threw himself at me and knocked the gun from my hand. The rumbling that filled the world seemed a result of our rolling about on the wet sand as if the beach was a drum skin against which we beat an ungainly rhythm. Heavier than I, and stronger, Espinal succeeded in turning me onto my back. His breath was sour as a beast's. My arms were wrapped around his neck, but he managed to hump up and down, his sloppy weight driving the air from my lungs. He started to come astride upon my chest, trying to pin me with his knees, but in his drunkenness he overbalanced, and as he righted himself I jabbed him with the kettle prod. He doubled onto his side. I triggered off a second charge into his stomach, a third into his chest, and came to my knees above him. A fourth and a fifth jolt, both delivered to his neck, rendered him unconscious. I intended to finish him then and there, but as I cast about for the gun, I saw that several black hearts had descended from the upper air and were drifting near. Unnerved, I scrambled to my feet and retreated towards the water. Rain was still pelting down, but the worst of the storm was passing inland. The lightning and thunder concentrated above the mountain behind the town, and though the wind still howled, the world seemed silent by a contrast to the chaos that had ruled minutes before. In the dim, flickering light, the black hearts... Their ugly, opaque forms, trembling as if in a state of excitation, had a freakish, evil look. And as they drifted closer to Espinal, despite my hatred, I felt a twinge of sympathy for the man. I knew his fate was at hand, and knew this was not by process of reason, but by virtue of the thing inside me, by the way the knowledge welled up in my brain, spreading like dye through water, slow and pervasive, qualities that characterized all the messages from my symbiote. I retreated farther from Espinal and watched as one of the black hearts came to hover inches above his face. I thought it would settle atop his head, as had the one I had earlier seen, but it did not. It settled instead upon his upturned face and merged with him, disappearing into his head somehow occupying the same volume of space. I was horrified to see this, suspecting that the creature inside me might not be benevolent, as I had begun to believe, but was draining me of life. For Espinal's reaction to possession was considerably different from my own. Rather than gradually returning to consciousness, he sat straight up from his supine pose, clutching the sides of his head, his expression reflecting pain and terror. He spotted me, staggered erect, his eyes wide and staring. He took a step toward me, then appeared to notice the other two black hearts hovering at waist level to his right. Backing away from them, he stumbled and fell heavily. He regained his feet and lurched toward me, his hair hanging into his eyes, rain streaming down his face. I held out the cattle prod, halting his advance. 
He clutched his head again and dropped to his knees. What? He shook his head wildly, as if trying to dislodge some awful restraint. What is it? I had achieved a kind of remote distaste for Espinal. I had nothing to say to him. The rain slanted in from the sea, trickling coal down my neck. The wind prowled ashore, ripping the fronds, scattering palm litter across the sand, sounding a long despondent vowel. Espinal struggled unsuccessfully to come to his feet. Judging by his clumsiness, his flailing efforts, I thought that the black heart must be impairing his motor control. Oriello, he shouted. Help me! His pleading was offensive, an indignity, and herded me against him. Oriello! He screamed my name, calling to God and continued struggling to rise, growing sluggish in his movements. Then his eyes rolled up to the heavens and he froze. The hundreds of black hearts that had not joined the migration of aerials inland were stacked above him, arranged in an arrow-straight column rising toward the clouds, an unnatural order that seemed redolent of conscious purpose, as if they were marking Espinal's location. He renewed his struggles, calling me again, promising rewards, offering an apology. I paid him no heed, for I was listening to an inner voice that stained all my thoughts, and obeying its wordless instruction, I turned my eye toward the mountain. I have said that I have apprehended some new electric presence in the air. Now that apprehension, previously subtle and peripheral, grew intense and specific, causing my symbiote to produce in me feelings of devotion and awe. Against logic, the central chaos of the storm was moving back towards the shore, contrary to the direction of the wind, an immense cloud lit from within by branches of lightning, resembling traceries of nerves firing in darkly translucent flesh. It approached with the grand, ponderous slowness of a floating kingdom, and I observed that it differed in some details from ordinary clouds. Although its underbelly was contoured with bumps and declivities like that of a cloud, these contours neither roiled nor shifted, but, though somewhat fluid, pulsing a little, sustained a basic terrain, and rather than appearing to boil across the sky, it looked to be of one piece, a semi-solid form towarding at a slight downward angle, presenting a view of its mountainous, tumbling height. I was too awestruck to know fear, too adulatory in my awe. But I knew the open area of the beach was not safe, and I hurried away from Espinal and the motionless column of black hearts. I stopped beneath the cluster of corossal palms beside the inlet and looked back. At that distance, some forty feet, I could not read Espinal's face, nor could I tell much from his body language, whether in the grip of emotion or compelled to quiet by the black heart nesting in his skull, he had ceased his struggles. I did not doubt, however, that he was afraid, that fear was a blazing shape that fit exactly into his skin, filling every crevice, all his mind focused on the cloud. It was bigger than I thought, big as a country. Even when its edges loomed overhead, 
its body kept sliding past the crest of the mountain. Flocking beneath its belly were thousands upon thousands of aerials, acolytes to their gold, and such was my feeling, ladies and gentlemen, for as I came to understand, to accept that this was no cloud, but an aerial itself, one impossibly huge, a vast presence, hidden mostly from our sight, capable of lightnings, a creature in whose image other creatures had been made, I realized it conformed, albeit monstrously so, to my conception of God. Gazing up into its smoky flesh, past the madly agitated swarm of aerials that celebrated its passage, past the traceries of lightning, I saw a darker structure in its depths, shaped like a great aleph, the seat of its divinity, and persuading me of its godhood more than anything I saw was the horror of power and invincibility it projected. The air bristled with ozone and was heavied by a pressure that stoppered my ears, muffling every sound. Here was a beast for whom there could be no predator. What better definition of God is there than that? As the storm dweller, so I have named it, stabilized over the beach, its body, by my estimate, no more than a hundred feet from the sand, and extending to the visible horizon in all directions, I remembered Espinal, the column of black hearts, no longer stood above him. I suppose they had joined the swarms of their fellows above, but his posture was unchanged. Sitting back on his haunches, a man awaiting judgment, it occurred to me how like a ritual sacrifice this unearthly scene had played. A signal column of black hearts, the processional of the cloud with its attendants, and the victim waiting alone, a victim prepared for the ritual by my actions. Perhaps I too had been prepared for my role, and what I understood of things was only an inkling for the complex intertwining between our lives and those of the aerials. I knew to a certainty this was true, knew it with the same intuitive certainty attaching to my conviction that Espinal was about to die. The wind had subsided, as if quailed by the presence of the storm-dweller, and the thunder was reduced to a grumbling that did not seem so much actual thunder as the record of some gross and gigantic internal process. The lightnings within the creature pulsed rapidly, decorating it with patterns that effloresced and faded too quickly for memory to fix upon, but conveyed by their mosaic structures the idea of symbol, of language. I wondered if Espinal had passed beyond fear and gained some appreciation of this monumentous display. He was staring up into the lightning as if entranced. It might be, I thought, that finding himself at the mercy of a monster so much more potent than he... His own monstrous soul was satisfied, and he perceived the rightness of his fate, and peaceful, accepting, he was now reviewing his life. Whatever the case, I know he must have seen some death coming, for I, who had a less perfect view, saw it coming myself. Deep within the storm-dweller, a speck of infernal brightness bloomed. It took so long to reach the sand, at least ten seconds, I would guess. I had ample time to speculate on its nature, 
thinking it must not be lightning, for if it were, it must have been generated at a point countless miles above, and consequently my estimation of the storm-dweller's size was far too low. Of course it was lightning, God's traditional weapon, an enormous stalk of white gold that sizzled from the belly of the storm-dweller, searing the air and stabbing the beach, enveloping Espinal in electric fire. He vanished from sight, reappearing briefly as the incandescence flickered and danced about him, a solarized shadow. Then he was gone, incinerated, vaporized, and perhaps absorbed into the massive engine of his destruction. Not a scrap left, though after images of his dying have prevailed in my mind ever since. I felt nothing for him. Our business was finished. I hoped that as the storm-dweller departed, I would be able to gauge his size more accurately. But instead of sliding off to the south or out to sea, he lifted straight up, elevating into the sky until I could no longer distinguish it from the imaginary forms of night. With its departure, the storm dissipated, as if it had been the unifying force that commanded the elements to fury. Once it had disappeared, I was at a loss. Not that Espinal was no longer a factor. It was conceivable I might be able to reclaim my life. Bribes could be paid, relationships patched. But looking at the hotel, that blue-green prison where my soul had been stunted, and the town, a seat of perfidy and hypocrisy, it seemed that all connection with my old life had been severed. Rather than devising a plan to regain my offices as businessmen, father and husband, I found myself thinking of biscochos, black hearts, melchiors and squeezel sticks, of the unknowable creature coiled within my skull, of the mystery these creatures posed, the exotic universal potentials their existence suggested. Potentials most clearly expressed by the storm-dweller. Had it been a singular entity, or was every tropical depression merely symptomatic of such a creature's passage near the earth? And what larger mysteries did those passengers portend? I wanted to know them, to understand the purposes of that unseen world and how they affected our own, and I wanted this with a passion such as I had never before experienced. I believe that Tito Obregon might well have felt this self-same passion and had gone ahead of me in his search for absolute truth. I had salted away phones against the day when I might decide to dissolve my marriage, thus I would have no difficulty in surviving. And though Marta had been less than an ideal wife, she was a good mother and would have enough from the sale of the hotel to get by. My sons distant from me already, would not grieve deeply and would grow more distant. There was no compelling reason for me to stay. I took a last look at the deck, where the party-goers had begun to reassemble, some to dance, unmindful of the strangeness of the night, and tried to pick out Marta from amongst the dancers. I was certain she would be dancing, though perhaps she was growing a little impatient as regarded the whereabouts of her lover. The wind kicked up again as I went along the beach, heading for the Cablevision compound where I planned to ask Antonio to drive me inland, a 
away from those who might seek to confine me. It was not a harsh storm wind, but one that swept up from the south, bringing with it the cool freshness of the high places, and buoyed by it, reckoning it for a harbinger of my future. With every step I took, I felt easier in my skin and more confident in my course. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my story, though not the whole of it. During the next few years, I traveled across the country, stopping in villages everywhere inquiring about Tito Obregón, for I came to believe that his pilgrimage was my own, that his path was the one I was bound to follow. But I had no word of him, and I have since concluded that while our fates may be similar, our paths are divergent. I discovered my symbiote occasionally required stronger doses of electricity than my brain could provide, and these I supplied by stripping lamp cords and applying the bare wires to my skin, until one night, in Puerto Cortés, I fell in with carnival folk, and upon learning they had no Señor Volto in their company, I suggested myself for the position, thereby becoming the electric personage you see before you tonight. Easy access to electricity was the motive underlying this career choice, but there was another purpose of which I was then unaware. Over the years, I have learned a great deal about myself and about the creature who shares my body. I have learned, for example, to distinguish between my own thoughts and feelings and those it generates in me. And yet, there is no longer much distinction between us. While our goals may differ in the specific, they were forged in the same lightnings. For my part, I am seeking God, not the storm dweller. I have witnessed it or its like many times since that night on the beach, and I know now it is merely God's messenger on earth, whereas God itself is a creature enclosing all of space and time, its vastness too great to be contemplated. But despite its vastness, it is no less a creature. I sense its imminence, and I am led to believe it may be approached from a point high in the mountains, these same mountains in which your village lies. I further believe I have been prepared by my symbiote for such an approach. God delights in such rituals. That is another thing I have learned. From what I have observed of the aerials and their interactions with our kind, I understand that much of human history is but a ritual orchestrated by the aerials in the service of their deity. Perhaps I am like Espinal, a sacrifice, a tasty treat steeped for long years in the electric juices of the symbiote. Perhaps I will serve a more significant function. Whichever of these destinies eventuate, I am complete in my acceptance of it. My symbiote, you see, is an evangel. It manifests to us, prepares us, and once its task is finished, moves on to another host. Tonight, having prepared me for the final stage of my journey, having formerly prepared Tito Obregón, it will slip from my body and traveling along the path of voltage, enter one of yours. That person will see, as I see now, the aerials massing above your village, 
a glorious profusion of bizcochos and swizzle sticks and more, and will begin a journey that mirrors mine, leading ultimately to a union with God. But I perceive that you doubt me, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you think I am mad. Others among you whisper that my story is a clever variation on the customary taunts offered by other Signor Voltos and is designed to provide an extra measure of fear that will make the act of grasping my paddles seem all the more courageous and thereafter will induce a delicious shudder in the young ladies who gaze into your eyes, searching for something out of the ordinary in their prospective lovers. Very well. I will not attempt to persuade you further of my truth, but rather invite you to experience it. Conquer your fears. Embrace your fate. The price is cheap. A mere five lempira. Come one, come all. Test yourself, if you dare. Don't forget, all copyright is Lucius Shepard. Lucius, thank you so much for that. That is really appreciated. Links to Lucius Shepard's site on the main site of mine. So that wraps up Starship Sofa's Oral Delights for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who's participated in that. Again, do pop over to the front of the site and check out links. You know, there's some great information there now and it's all for your taking. If you want to support the Starship Sofa, do consider the monthly donations. £2.50 and you get a private feed of the life and times of my good self. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.